you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. Me Martinez. It's been just over a week since fired Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty of murdering George Floyd. U.S. Congresswoman Karen Bass of L.A. thinks there's a good chance the police reform bill named after Floyd will pass the Senate. However, there could be one big thing that could get in its way. Find out what ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Thanks for being with us today. Coming up, it's believed that more than 25,000, that's right, 25,000 barrels containing the pollutant DDT have been dumped off the Southern California coast near Catalina Island. Marine scientists have called it staggering, so what can be done about it? We'll talk about the potential for cleanup just ahead. But first, legislating police reform. Last Tuesday, the world was watching as former police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted on all three counts, including second and third degree murder in the death of George Floyd. The verdict landed as Congress wrestles with police reform on a national level. In March of this year, the House passed the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, which would, among other things, ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants and give the U.S. attorney more oversight of state and local police. It waits consideration in the Senate. Congresswoman Karen Bass authored that bill. She's the U.S. representative for the California's 37th District, which was and was until recently chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. We spoke today earlier about the bill and how she felt when last week's verdict was read aloud. Well, honestly, I I felt numb. I was relieved. I was preparing myself considering I was there uh, with the Rodney King verdict. And even though it was so obvious, I thought that the prosecution did a brilliant case. You just never know. And so I was definitely relieved. However, the next step is the sentence. And in the rare time when an officer is convicted, Uh, sometimes the sentence can be a slap on the wrist. So I will hold my breath until June when this process will be completed. So things could still go wrong in a sense if, well, I mean, if the sentence isn't exactly what anyone thinks it should be. Yes, things could go wrong, but it's not exactly what someone thinks. It's that there needs to be a sentence that's commiserate with the crime. In my opinion, that's a 40-year sentence. Other people might have different opinions. But if he gets off for time served or probation or a couple of years, then it will once again devalue the life of George Floyd. Now, last summer, uh, Congresswoman, you introduced the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which recently passed the House. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the bill would do to change policing? Yes, there are several parts of the bill. One is accountability, and that is one of the reasons why we saw Derek Chauvin look into the camera was because he didn't feel that he had any liability on the civil side, didn't think he could get sued, and didn't think he could get prosecuted. After all, Derek Chauvin had over 15 different uh, incidences of abusing people and is under potentially under investigation for another one right now. That's one piece of the bill. 
The other piece of the bill really tries to lift up the profession of policing like any other profession, transparency, standards, accreditation. So if you have bad officers on the force, the public should know about it. Now we're watching all of these officers get fired or resign like the woman that killed Dante Wright, but she could just as easily go to another city and get hired again as a police officer. I don't think that she should. So in the George Floyd Justice to Policing Act, we have a national registry that would be public. We ban chokeholds. We say that those three officers that were complicit in the murder of George Floyd, they have a duty to intervene. They could be charged for not intervening under the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. There is no accreditation or national standards for 18,000 police departments. So policing is done differently wherever you are in the country. And then finally, the bill has grants for communities to really begin to re-envision public safety. Personally, I think we need to take a look at public safety and policing in a, a very large way. I think that this bill moves us a step forward, but so much more will need to be done after President Biden signs this bill. And just to define uh, qualified immunity for a second, in a nutshell, it shields police from accountability when using excessive force and prevents victims from getting justice. Congresswoman, do you think that if there were no qualified immunity when Derek Chauvin met up with George Floyd, that his knee would be on his neck longer than nine minutes, much less nine seconds? Well, a qualified immunity is one piece. If he felt that he could get sued personally, I think that would have caused him to think twice. But the other piece is, is that the bar to prosecute an officer is so high, we need to lower that bar. So if he felt that he could be personally responsible financially, if he felt that he had the potential to be prosecuted, both of those things would, I think, might have saved George Floyd's life. Now, he looked at the camera because he didn't think he had anything to worry about. Fortunately, because of the hundreds of thousands of people that protested in every state in the country and many countries around the world, the tide was changed. I will tell you, if you look at the report that the officer um, submitted after he murdered George Floyd, he basically said, stop the black man. He died of a medical incident. If that youngster, if that teenager had not filmed it, then George Floyd would have just been another dead black man. That's how he filed. He falsified the report. Senator Tim Scott in his bill has a provision that is not in ours, but I think should be in the ultimate bill. And that says that if you falsify a report, you can be charged for that. And and Derek Chauvin absolutely falsified that report. Congresswoman, what about the argument, though, that police need to make split second decisions on a lot of things, a lot of dangerous situations? And if qualified immunity weren't there, they wouldn't be able to make those decisions, putting their lives in danger. Doctors have to make split second decisions. And if they kill somebody in the course of making the wrong decision, what happens to them? I think, again, the standards for policing need to be lifted up. Now, I don't denigrate police officers. They risk their life every single day. But this is a profession that has the ability to take your freedom and take your life. Don't you think there should be some standards to a profession with that much power? Representative, where is a line that you will not cross when it comes to compromise? Is qualified immunity or at least some part of getting qualified immunity in this bill something that you will not allow to uh, to not happen? Well, I I will never negotiate in in public. We have uh, built up a tremendous amount of trust and goodwill, and I'll save that for the negotiations. But just know that I believe that we really need to look at policing in the country. Look at the case we're dealing with now with Andrew Brown, where they are hiding the tape. Obviously, that tape shows a quote unquote bad shooting. Uh, If that weren't the case, they would be happy to release that video. This bill just moves us a step forward. And I think that we need to lift the standards and we have got to hold police accountable. If they don't feel that they're accountable, they can just, you know, routinely treat people the way they want to. 
accountability though for who? For the police officer or for the police department? Because I know oh, that. Uh, oh. Well, I, but what if what if you had to choose one or the other? Because I mean, that, that's part, the part of what you're doing, Congresswoman, is is making deals and compromising, getting things to the president's desk. And if Republicans say, "Look, we'll we'll allow for for families of victims to sue the police department," would that be enough to get this bill, at least in your eyes, through? It's it's not just a matter of suing police. They both need to be accountable, the individual officers and the departments. And so officers need to be held accountable if they are brutalizing somebody. They will be held accountable through the registry. They will be held accountable through um, enhancing the attorney general's office to do investigations to see if there's a pattern of abuse, if there is a practice that is inappropriate in a particular police department. Qualified immunity is an important measure of accountability. It is not the only measure of accountability that is in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And the reason I asked it, because I was wondering if it put more pressure on departments as a whole to root out the poor cops and incentivize departments to change cultures and identify biases that lead to black people getting shot and killed by police. You're absolutely right. And we also know that it's not just black people. It's it's African-Americans and Latinos that are disproportionately impacted by police uh, brutality. Uh, Yes, I think so. But, you know, we have to look for a variety of different ways. Obviously, if a department is sued over and over again, at some point they have to decide, are they going to change and improve their culture? Or are they just going to continue giving away the city's treasure? We're talking to U.S. Representative Karen Bass about her attempts to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act in Congress. When it comes to Tim Scott's um, counter proposal, you mentioned a little bit of it. How, I mean, how does it compare on some of the key points? Is there a way to blend both into a bill that will get through the Senate and to uh, President Biden's desk? I absolutely believe that. Uh, I have developed a strong working relationship with Senator Scott. And I believe we are committed to getting a bill on President Biden's desk before the anniversary of George Floyd's death. And I do think that there's parts of the bills that can be combined. I also think that there were a lot of things that we didn't include in the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act that we need to. For example, there needs to be resources to Health and Human Services to intervene when people have uh, mental uh, illness crises. It is shameful. It is a stain on our country that we incarcerate the mentally ill and that the mentally ill die at the hands of police because we do not properly care for our people. If no Republicans sign on, would you be willing to just go for the tiebreaker and just push this through? No, you know, this bill has to be a bipartisan bill because of the filibuster in the Senate. We did pass it on a partisan basis out of the House. We will get the 10 Republican votes. And you sound very confident with that. Uh, What makes you think that the 10 votes will be there? Well, my confidence is in the relationships that have been built over the last several months and the relationships that have been built in the House with the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is a bipartisan caucus. They've been working with their counterparts in the Senate. So there's a, a group of us, Democrats and Republicans, that have been working on this issue And I think we have built up enough trust and confidence in each other that we will get this across the finish line. Now, having said that, this is Congress. Anything could happen. It could be blown up. But I'm very optimistic. Now, some activist groups, though, say this bill invests too much in policing and and rather than in marginalized communities. Uh, What would you say to uh, those critics? Well, I would say that this bill takes a step forward, but they are absolutely right in terms of the investment that needs to happen in marginalized communities. And let me just say that what has happened over the last three decades is that we have cut funding, we have divested from health, education, and economic resources in each of these communities. And then when the communities develop problems because they've had the rug pulled out from under them, then we expect the police to handle it. And mental health is one of the most dramatic examples of that. Where would the money come from to be able to do that, if that's a possibility? Where does the money come from from for anything? We have no problem spending money with a blank check to the Defense Department. So all we need to do is take a couple of days of money that we spend in one of the various wars, and that would fund everything we need. So we find money when we want to. And we should find money to protect our communities 
so that we do not have to be reliant on police. We should not be now. If we took care of people, we wouldn't need to have police come. One more thing, Representative Bass. Uh, you're, you're a California congresswoman, and I wanted to ask you about the recall campaign against your governor, Gavin Newsom. It's all but a certainty that he will be facing a recall election in the fall. Uh, your thoughts on how it's all come about? Well, I think it's shameful. I mean, people signed the recall petition because they're mad. They're mad that all of us have had our lives so dramatically changed because of COVID. But if people want to get rid of Gavin Newsom, he is up for re-election next year. This is completely unnecessary. I think it is an attempt by Republicans to do a power grab because, frankly, the only way the Republicans could take the office of governor in our state is through a recall. They can't win in a regular election. So we're going to waste hundreds of millions of dollars on a recall election that will take place in November of this year when his re-election is six or seven months away and we'll have to spend the money again. So I think the only reason a governor should be recalled is because he or she has committed a crime, is corrupt, or for something very nefarious and extreme. To recall someone because you're mad at them, I think is ridiculous. Well, I don't, I, Gray Davis, I don't remember doing anything nefarious or extreme. People were dissatisfied with him. I, I've talked to plenty of Democrats, lifelong Democrats, who have signed the recall petition. So what do you say to Democrats who have grown frustrated? Well, first of all, let me say that Governor Davis should not have been recalled. That was ridiculous as well. And to uh, Democrats who've signed the petition, they have 30 days to take their signature away. <laughs> I wish they would do that. They need to understand the implications because Governor Newsom will not be on the ballot in November. There are two questions on the ballot. Do you want to recall him? And if you vote yes, then you pick somebody. He won't be on the ballot. So if you're mad at him in November and we wind up having a re Republican, that has incredible implications for the future of our state. That's Karen Bass, U.S. Representative for California's 37th Congressional District, which covers parts of South and West Los Angeles. Representative Bass, thank you very much uh, for joining us on Take Two. Thank you for having me on. Tonight, President Biden will address a joint session of Congress where he'll unveil what he's calling the American Families Plan. We're going to carry the speech live, plus the Republican response. That's tonight at 6 right here on KPCC. Now, Biden's plan includes free community college for anyone who wants to enroll. We'll hear how having those two years of higher ed under someone's belt can change the rest of their life. That's coming up when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on kpcc.org. I'm Martinez. 
In a primetime address tonight, President Biden is expected to outline the American Families Plan, which would, among other things, subsidize two years of community college for low- and middle-income families. Now, to discuss the significance of this move, we turn to Community College League of California President and CEO, Dr. Larry Galizio. Also joining us is Amber Angel, Program Coordinator for the Family Resource Center at Los Angeles Valley College. Larry, let's start with you on this. Now, this, of course, uh, only a proposal at this point, but how significant is it that subsidies for community college are included here? Very significant. And it it really recognizes the essential role of community colleges in a 21st century economy where about 70% of jobs require some type of post-secondary credential or post-secondary education and training. And the thing about it, I went to four community colleges, Larry. So I know that when when you go to a community college, you're basically taking the same courses you would be taking at that more expensive four-year school, essentially. That's correct. Uh, it's it's higher education. Yeah. It's college. It's less expensive. It's more open and accessible. And often you have smaller classes. So we think the quality right. is, is is high and it's that's being recognized. Now, Amber, many students enrolled in community colleges are starting second careers or working full time or are parents. Uh, you yourself were uh, counted in that last category when you were at L.A. Valley College. Um, what are the financial considerations that many community college students have to take into account as they try and balance school and just life? It's a great question, and it's a lot. You know, it's I was all of those categories, actually, and a lot of our student parents face, which just statistically is about 30 percent of all community college students in the country are raising young children in the home. Um, Child care needs, textbooks, um, the needs and the expenses go way beyond tuition. What are those expenses beyond tuition? Uh, child care, um, s- supplies, textbooks. Oftentimes we think, oh, we'll just borrow a textbook. Well, a lot of classes are um, requiring online f- online digital codes that can never be used again. Um, that was a huge expense for me. Uh, transportation, housing, things that aren't considered into your, um, you know, Pell eligibility. Parking, and there's so many other things, too, that uh, are involved. Um, Larry, not only is President Biden talking about free tuition, but also higher Pell Grants. Uh, What do Pell Grants offer students now, and and what might an increase mean for those who rely on them? So Pell Grants, it's the largest federal program of of aid for, for students in the United States, started in 1973. And for lower income families and students, it's really a lifeline. It does cover some of those non-tuition costs that Amber just talked about, which are the most expensive element of community college education in California where living expenses and and the others. So the the Pell Grant, unfortunately, has not kept up with inflation. It's not pegged or or, uh, linked to inflation. And so it's worth about, you know, 30, 40%, maybe 50% of what it was worth uh-huh. at one time when the cost of education was much lower, as was the cost of living. So it's better than nothing, but not nowhere near enough. I, I think that's a fair statement. It is, you know, it is significant. And this investment or proposed investment would have a tremendous impact on affordability for higher education for families. You know, Amber, community college enrollment has been down uh, due to the pandemic. We've heard even of some uh, in California possibly closing. Uh, do you think that offering free tuition could help entice students come back and maybe keep some of these colleges uh, afloat? I think, sure. I think that it's going to definitely entice families, especially after this pandemic, who a lot, especially women out of the workforce who have had to leave the workforce to care for their families and their children. But I think that there needs to be some policies and funding in place beyond just Pell Pell, um, increase to students, that there needs to be some policies and funding to institutions to provide support for these parents and these families that are going to be starting school. Um, we, we often talk about this, that student parents are not identified as an equity issue. There's a lot of federal money that gets funded to states for equity dollars on college campuses, yet student parents aren't outlined in that. Um, and that, that would be huge. We, we talk about Pell eligibility and expected family income of being zero, but a lot of parents have negative expected uh, contribution to be mm-hmm. able to pay for school. 
when a when a student who is a parent or maybe even a single parent, a community college student, when, when for whatever reason they can't re-enroll in the next semester, what are the chances, Amber, that they come back? Because I know I know that the chances are very low that they come back within the next few semesters or at all. I don't have a statistic on that, but I know myself, I, I did have to drop out of school because of my, because of becoming pregnant with my second daughter in school. I did come back. It took me a semester, but it was because I had supports in place. Yeah. Los Angeles Valley college where I work is the, there's 115 community colleges in the state of California. And we are the only one with a family resource center. Wow. When yeah. I was a student, if I hadn't had the family resource center to support me and my daughters while I was in school, I never would have made it through community college, let alone graduate transfer and be the first in my family of eight to do so. So the, these supports are absolutely necessary. I don't think that it's about the, the parents willingness to want to come back. I think we all want what's best for our families. It's about having the support there to help you. So Larry, when it comes to the free tuition, I mean, what do you think could that entice students to come back knowing that they, that at least that is cared for and taken care of? Sure. I think the, the fact that the Biden administration is proposing this foregrounds community colleges and it reminds people what a uniquely American and great resource it is. You know, I hope we don't also forget, you know, we talk a lot about disproportionately impacted families with COVID um, with, and, and the economic recession. But the other thing with community colleges is we are the ones that educate and train the nurses that are taking care of your family, the firefighters who are going to fight the wildfires here in California, the respiratory therapists. So we are vital institutions. We're essential for the essential workforce. And so I do hope People will take a second look. People were devastated and they remain devastated, but uh, we're open for business. And this is going to remind people that that's the case. Now, details still need to be worked out. uh, But what else, uh, Larry, would you like to see done on a federal level for community college students? Uh, How much time do you have? Uh, No, I I get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so there's a proposed investment for the Pell Grant, and that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. One of the elements... Uh, that would be really helpful for a lot of families is not everyone has the time to go to you know four years or even two years of, of college, but there are people who want to you know upskill and reskill. And we have short, uh, short-term programs in workforce education. And those are some of those are not eligible for Pell. So I think okay. opening up Pell grants for short-term workforce development programs would greatly help uh, Californians, and actually people throughout the nation. Amber, you get the last word. Really quick, uh, what would you like to see done on a federal level for community college students beyond uh, the bill? I definitely have to agree with Larry. First of all, we uh, we partner with our workforce department on campus for a grant called Strengthening Working Families to support those parents who um, aren't eligible for Pell as well. So I think that that's hugely important. And again, just going back to identifying student parents as an equity issue, when we're looking at you know impacting families, 30% of community college students, we need to be addressing their needs outside of the classroom that are going to impact their ability to be successful. And um, I think the Family Resource Center at Los Angeles Valley College is a prime example of how that can be done well. That's Amber Angel, Program Coordinator for the Family Resource Center at LA Valley College, and also Larry Galizio, Community College League of California President and CEO. Larry, Amber, thanks a lot. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, moving on. The Pentagon is trying to make some of the nation's most crucial military bases less vulnerable to the effects of climate change. The effort comes more than two years after a pair of hurricanes caused billions of dollars in damage to bases in the southeast. From Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, Jay Price reports for the American Homefront Project, a public radio collaboration. In front of a single-story brick regimental headquarters that will be torn down and replaced, four dignitaries in hard hats raised shovels of soil. If we do this right, all dirt will be synchronized. Are we ready? Lift. Three, two, one. Then they dumped the dirt. All right. It's a set piece of civic life, a groundbreaking ceremony to mark the start of a construction project. But in this case, it also marks a big moment for national security, the start of construction on dozens of buildings that have to be replaced here because of damage from Hurricane Florence in 2018. The reconstruction effort is so large and important that the Navy set up an entire new facilities command to run it under a senior officer, Captain Jim Brown. He's the MC for the groundbreaking. This is ceremony, but it is a huge deal. 
We will restore this base. We will get it back and we'll make it better than it was before. Navy and Marine officers say Congress pushed through funding quickly, planning was accelerated, and construction is starting twice as soon as typical military projects. But it will still take at least another five years to complete the work. Miguel Dieguez, also a Navy captain, is Camp Lejeune's facilities director. He spoke to a group of dignitaries before the ceremony. Hurricane Florence, uh, I like to say, exposed a soft underbelly of our infrastructure here at, across the three marine corps installations in North Carolina. The hurricane was unusual in that it not only was powerful, but it moved slowly and carried an extraordinary amount of water. Its high winds damaged the roofs of hundreds of buildings at Camp Lejeune and the New River and Cherry Point Marine Corps air stations. Then the storm sat over them for three days, dumping an all-time record of three feet of rainfall. It poured into ceilings and inside walls and flooded interiors. Again, Captain Diegas. The oldest and kind of most vulnerable part of our infrastructure uh, that dates back to the 40s and 50s was really susceptible to the winds and the rain that happened. The startling amount of damage here and billions of dollars more from another hurricane the same year at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida led the Pentagon to retool its construction standards to better take into account the increasing risks from climate change. Diego said the new structures will be built to better withstand storms. Getting the ability to rebuild the infrastructure so that going forward when a storm like this happens again, and it's only a matter of time, the base is better postured, more resilient. And the main Marine headquarters for East Coast Infantry Units, which is on the waterfront, will be relocated to one of the highest points on the base. Uh, we can't really wall off water. Um, so it is uh, refreshing to hear that Camp Lejeune is looking at moving uh, some structures inland. That's Shana Yadvardi of the Union of Concerned Scientists. She was co-author of a report in 2016 underlining the threats climate change poses to several bases, including Lejeune. Yadvardi said it was heartening when Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin called climate change an existential threat to U.S. national security, signaling a new level of seriousness in the Pentagon about climate issues. Experts have long warned that many Many coastal military bases are vulnerable to the sea level rise and increasingly numerous and more powerful storms triggered by climate change. A Center for Climate and Security report issued just months before the storm hit Lejeune had highlighted risks there. Among other things, it recommended significant upgrades to the base's utilities to make them less vulnerable to storms and flooding. Diegas said those are among the improvements now planned. At Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, I'm Jay Price. All right, here's a sobering thought. It's believed that more than 25,000 barrels containing the pollutant DDT were dumped off the Southern California coast right near Catalina Island. I mean, marine scientists have called it absolutely staggering. It just goes on and on. We'll talk about the potential for a cleanup. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist correspondent Josie Huang. LA's Chinatown is a neighborhood in flux. I tell the stories of recent Asian-American immigrants and families who've been here for generations. I can never forget where I come from. How they navigate being Asian and American. But her landlord has ordered the tenants, mostly Asian immigrants, to move out so she can renovate the property and how that shapes L.A.'s future. L.A.ist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. Just looking out on the day of another dream. 
Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Amy Martinez. Scientists have uncovered a massive deep-sea dump site of DDT barrels just miles off the coast of Catalina Island. DDT is a chemical pesticide that was banned for use in the U.S. in 1972 due to its harmful impacts on the environment. So needless to say, the find is alarming. For more on this discovery and what maybe to do about it, we turn now to Mark Gold, Governor Newsom's Deputy Secretary for Ocean and Coastal Policy. Uh, Mark, my understanding is that the dumping ground has long been suspected, but uh, how many canisters of DDT? were actually discovered. Um, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, that's a question that's still pending. Um, and uh, there's the legacy of California environmental history or our nation's environmental history on dumping toxic waste um, is pretty horrifying when you look at what happened in the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and even the early 70s. And so um, a lot of the work that we've seen uh, put together by Professor David Valentine at UC Santa Barbara, um, Scripps Institute, um, NOAA, and then, you know, that great journalism, uh, those articles that have been written by Rosanna Shaw at the LA Times, it really exposed the scope and scale of this issue in a different way. And the reason this is on the news this time is because of the completion of a preliminary survey um, testing out some some pretty cool new equipment um, to really assess uh, the scope and scale of the the dumped uh, toxic waste barrels uh, um, in the uh, Palos Verdes Basin area. So we're mm-hmm. talking about three thousand feet deep between Pal- Palos Verdes Peninsula and Catalina Island. And so people knew that there had been yeah. uh, dumping out there, but nobody knew the scope and scale of it quite to this extent. And, and I mean, what's a rough estimate on a number? I know I'm not pinning you down, Mark, on on any specific number, but I mean, from what I was reading, what it it could be countless right now, endless so far. Yeah, one of the things that came out of that that work that Scripps and Noah did was that they never really found the boundary oh, wow. of where all the the barrels were, and so th- they did some preliminary work and came up with estimates of you know, 25,000 plus barrels um, that they, with with um, very high certainty, they know were barrels. Then another 100,000 plus objects that could be barrels or could be other um, other materials um, at that depth. Um, and, and so it really brought up the, that when we think of something about a dump site, you know, a lot of us think of sort of a point on the ocean where yeah. Uh, a bunch of stuff was dumped. And now we just see that, you know, they looked at 36,000 acres and really there was no boundary on the 36,000 acres where you really saw all the the barrels um, drop off to nothing. And that, that to me was the scariest outcome of their work. Talking to Mark Gold, Governor Newsom's Deputy Secretary for Ocean and Coastal Policy. Um, why was all of that allowed to be just dumped in the ocean? Yeah, well, you know, environmental laws back then really weren't environmental laws. I hate to say it. I mean, when you think about the 40s and 50s and 60s, um, you, you know, the environmental movement when it came to, to, to law and regulation really began in 1970 um, uh, with the National Environmental Policy Act and the Clean Air Act. Clean Water Act didn't kick in until 1972. And so um, illegal dumping of ocean waste um, um, started getting prohibited early in the early 70s. But prior to that, the ocean was the dumping ground for a lot of toxic waste. And and so um, just absolutely inexcusable. Um, And because it's DDT, you know, it's a legacy for generations to come. I mean, we're talking about a chemical that was banned um, basically 50 years ago. So what possible environmental hazards come from a chemical like DDT? Well, uh, for those of you who are familiar with the issue, um, DDT and some of the problems that it uh, causes um, it should be familiar to most Angelinos because the Palos Verdes Shelf, which is shallower water off of Palos Verdes, has about 17 square miles of contaminated sediments that's part of a Superfund site. And that has caused uh, high levels of DDT and PCBs in a wide variety of different um, fish. Um, and so white croaker has been the most notorious of the fish, but there's a wide variety of fish that our state office of environmental health hazard assessment 
um, has recommendations to sort of limit consumption of that fish. So what what could be happening also in deeper waters is we might be seeing um, fish contamination. Um, uh, whether or not uh, whether or not it's there or not, we don't know yet. We don't. The sediments could be contaminated. That's something that we we need to understand better. Um, are some of the other um, organisms, marine animals um, that live in the sediments or on the sediments, um, are they also contaminated? We don't know. But off the Palisverde Shelf, we you may recall, I mean, we lost bald eagles on the Channel Islands. Now they've recovered because of the ban on DDT and reintroduction efforts by um, a wide variety of different agencies, um, uh, including our own California Department of Fish and Wildlife and and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, and NOAA. Uh, and so that's been great news. But that, those are some of the problems that occur. We also see, even today, our marine mammals have some of the highest levels of, of DDT anywhere on the planet. And so um, still causing problems in those populations as well, where high concentrations of DDT, recently researchers have found a very strong correlation to the onset of um, various different types of cancers. Mark, is the damage done on this? I mean, would it even help to try to clean up? I, I don't even know how you anyone would do it, but I mean, would it even help at this point to even try? Yeah, that is such a daunting question and one that is keeping up many people at night, you know, in the state and federal government is, um, as well. And um, the first order of business is um, really was done uh, with the great work that Scripps and Noah did um, in, in really doing this mapping work and really giving us an idea of the scope and scale of the problem. Um, but it's important to really under, do the site assessment to understand how contaminate, contaminated the sediments are and if the biota is contaminated so we can get a better idea of what um, the impacts are of that legacy contamination. And really, if the impacts are severe, that's really the right time to start talking about. Okay. Is there anything that can be done on remediation? Um, anything, anything to sort of talk about it before then, I think is really premature. We, we just don't know enough. Um, but I, I can tell you the information on the scope and scale of this with the 36,000 acres or, you know, uh, 148 square kilometers, whatever, however you want to put it. Um, it's just such an enormous area to even think about what could be done. Um, it, it just there's no precedent to deal yeah. with a site like this anywhere on the planet. Size of San Francisco, right? That that's how big we're talking about. Yeah, the size, except for you know you're at three thousand feet deep of water, yeah. and and really trying to get much done at that depth um, over a large scale. I mean, just nothing like that's happened. We've never seen site remediation like that, and um, so it's it's. It's like I said, I think to have those discussions right now is premature. It really makes a lot more sense to understand better, uh, really, uh, the, to assess the problems that we have on the site right now and the level of contamination. Plus, one of the things I think is really important for um, uh, the listeners to understand is that the majority of barrels that were dumped off that area weren't from the Montrose Chemical Company and filled with DET. The majority came from a wide variety of other different um, uh, uh, polluters, pollution sources, including um, the oil industry um, was quite prevalent. And so uh, so to just think it's a DDT PCB yeah. problem, we, we need to do a lot, a lot of study to really understand what else is down there other than, other than those contaminants. That's Mark Gold, uh, Governor Newsom's Deputy Secretary for Ocean and Coastal Policy. Mark, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up, the scuttlebutt on the butt, specifically Glenn Close's butt, which she shook at the Oscars for the world to see. But and this is the big butt. Was it planned or just some good old fashioned spontaneous booty shaking? We'll find out when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. 
Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org. I'm Martinez. The Producers Guild of America moves to tackling bullying in Hollywood in the wake of allegations against Scott Rudin. Plus, Citizen Kane has lost its perfect score on Rotten Tomatoes. For more on this, let's go on the lot. Stick your head out and yell. You want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. I knew having Rosebud there would eventually work for us. So joining us, as always, is Rebecca Keegan, Senior Editor for Film for The Hollywood Reporter. Welcome back, Rebecca. Hi. All right, so let's start with the Producers Guild of America, or the PGA. The the trade organization is instituting anti-bullying training that uh, is also going to be forming a, a task force as well. Now, this is in the wake of allegations of workplace bullying and harassment against veteran producer Scott Rudin. Uh, what do you know about this move? Well, the PGA already offers training for productions on issues like sexual harassment and discrimination and bias. They're now adding anti-bullying training to their offerings. Um, In a release, they said they're forming this task force to, quote, examine these issues within our membership and the entertainment business at large. We stand committed to working with our colleagues at other organizations to eradicate this behavior. So what will the training entail and, and what will be the task force's responsibility? Well, they haven't given a lot of specifics yet, but if this mirrors the sexual harassment program the PGA offers, you can expect there'll be things like bystander training, what to do if you're not the victim of bullying, but you witness it, um, information on how to report an incident, how to track complaints, that sort of a thing. So what, okay, so what are the allegations against uh, Scott Rudin? Well, these first emerged in a story by my colleague at The Hollywood Reporter, Tatiana Siegel, um, which detailed allegations of physical and psychological workplace Uh, by Rudin among the allegations that he threw a stapler and a baked potato at co-workers, slammed a computer monitor down on an assistant's hand, um, regularly berated and fired people who work for him, and went through more than 100 assistants in five years. Rebecca, that sounds like exactly the movie Swimming with Sharks. It's it's the exact, (laughs) I'm not kidding. If if, if anyone can stand seeing a Kevin Spacey movie these days, that is the movie that basically sounds like uh, what you just described. Um, Has anyone that's worked with uh, Rudin responded to the allegations? Well, you know, what was interesting to me is that no one said anything about it at the Oscars, um, including Francis McDormand, who's been making a movie with him right now. Some people have uh, have piped up. Megan Ellison of Annapurna Pictures said she supported people who were speaking up. Uh, Michael Chabon, who had worked with Rudin on a film adaptation of The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay that never got made, he wrote a kind of apologetic blog post about his silence. And then a few unions, in addition to the PGA, have spoken up. SAG-AFTRA has. Notably, I think companies that Rudin's been in business with most recently, the studio A24, have yet to comment. He's no longer apparently working on the films he was making for A24. Uh, But, you know, bullying, as awful as it can be, is not, strictly speaking, against the law, unlike sexual harassment. So that may dictate some of how you'll see companies responding or choosing to respond to this. And in case anyone's wondering, in that movie, Kevin Spacey plays a big Hollywood executive who throws pencils, papers, staplers to his assistant and goes through a million assistants all the time. So it just sounds uh, exact. We're talking to Rebecca Keegan of The Hollywood Reporter. All right, uh, let's move on uh, and head to the movie theater. A Japanese anime uh, Demon Slayer just set a record at the box office despite it opening during the pandemic. Uh, Rebecca, how well did it do? Uh, really well. It earned $19.5 million in the U.S. and Canada its opening weekend, which is the biggest opening weekend ever for a foreign language film. That tops the $17.4 million earned by Zhang Yimou's 2004 film Hero. It's, it, you know, it's rated R and it's in Japanese, and it just barely got beat by Warner Brothers' Mortal Kombat movie, which made $23.3 million domestically over the weekend. And that's despite that film being available on HBO Max at the same time that it's in theaters. Yeah, I got to, I saw Mortal Kombat. Uh, it reminded me of playing the video game a long, long time ago with my brother. So we got to... Did you watch it at home or go to the theater? I watched it at home. I'm still not yeah. quite there yet, Rebecca Keegan, to head into a movie theater. Just... No, no judgment here. Go when you're ready. I have not been you yet either. I'm waiting for the movie that calls me out. 
out. Um, I think it's going to be in the Heights, the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical that's coming in June. But, you know, I think it's interesting that these two movies are both rated R, primarily appeal to younger males. That might tell you something about who's comfortable heading to a movie theater right now. Oh, yeah. As a young male myself, Rebecca Keegan, of course, that movie. No, (laughs) I I just, just, there was a lot of gruesome violence in Mortal Kombat, but that's the name of the movie, Mortal Kombat. So I think uh, that's why it appeals to those young guys. Um, You think these successes could be because of pent-up demand for uh, new movies? I think so. I mean, you know, the box office still isn't what it used to be, and it probably won't be until later 2021 or 2022, particularly in places like Europe and Latin America, where the vaccine rollout is happening more slowly. But people are increasingly comfortable and uh, many of them vaccinated and looking for a reason to go to the movies. So far, studios haven't been giving them much. That will change pretty soon. We'll have over the next couple of months, the new Fast and Furious movie, A Quiet Place Part Two. And as I mentioned, that uh, musical in the heights which are all movies that may draw people out you know i might just hold out rebecca uh the flash film comes out in 2022 ezra miller as the flash i Whoa. i might hold out and make that my grand return inside a movie theater that, then that's the putting theaters too much... will miss you that's a lot of time between now and i then. mean i'll still be watching stuff but i mean it's you know at home but uh yeah look, that, that might right. be put too much pressure on the flash and poor ezra miller i will be very critical <laughs> if, if the not movie's good? not great uh, okay speaking <laughs> yeah. of a great film citizen kane considered one of the greatest films if not the greatest film ever made has lost its decades-long perfect score on rotten tomatoes rebecca what happened Rotten Tomatoes has been going through newspaper archives and adding older reviews, and they apparently unearthed a Chicago Tribune review from 1941 by a critic who didn't like Citizen Kane. As critic wrote that the movie is, quote, bizarre enough to become a museum piece, but its sacrifice of simplicity to eccentricity robs it of distinction and general entertainment value. So that means Citizen Kane no longer has a 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow, that is going back to a different lens, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So the big story this week uh, was the Oscars. Uh, we've already covered that. One of the night's highlights, though, Rebecca, was Glenn Close dancing the butt. So what happened and was it planned? Because that's what I want to know. Yes. Well, she Glenn Close has explained on her Instagram how it all went down. She said she had been told that she was going to be asked about debut, and together with her table mates, who included Daniel Kaluuya and screenwriter Chris Terrio, she came up with what she was going to say. The decision to actually dance was a spontaneous one. While she was sitting there, she had Googled a butt and watched the Spike Lee music video and just felt, you know, she she got that notion, I guess, to put her backside in motion. Rebecca Keegan, I have long been a proponent for spontaneous booty shaking. That's always been one of the core uh, core parts of the e. Martinez platform. I was so hoping that the whole thing was coming off the cuff, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, the dance was off the cuff. The knowledge she she read up, she studied up as a prepared thespian always does. I can't falter for Googling the butt. That's uh, Rebecca no. Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. How many more times can we say butt? Uh, Rebecca, you think in this segment? <laughs> Rebecca, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. I mean, you get on a roll and you start to say the word, but you just can't stop saying it just over and over again. All right. Uh, if you missed any part of Take Two, just head on over to wherever you get your podcast. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. Uh, we're also on social media on Twitter at uh, Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at two. Marketplace is next.